1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Hugh Talat Haman, associate professor of religious studies at Central Michigan University, about his exciting new book, "Where the Two Seas Meet: The Quranic Story of Al-Khidr and Moses in Sufi Commentaries as a Model of Spiritual Guidance," published by Fonz Vita in 2013. In Where the Two seas Meet, Halman unpacks one of the most provocative narratives in the Islamic tradition. In the 18th chapter of the Qur'an, Surat al-Kaf, the cave, a mysterious figure named Khidr, meaning the green man, guides Moses through a series of seemingly criminal acts. These events turn out to be, rather, tests to try Moses' patience, each with divine purpose and knowledge behind it. Because of Khidr's special knowledge and status, even immortal according to some traditions. This story from the Qur'an has inspired Muslims from a variety of cultures to take interest in the relationship between Moses and Khidr as a model of discipleship, adversity, and spiritual symbolism. In his pioneering book, Haman charts the waters of literature about the story of Khidr and Moses while giving special attention to Sufi commentaries, including those of Ruzbihan Baqli, Al-Qushayri, and Al-Qashani. Haman also demonstrates that it was not only medieval Muslims who gravitated toward mining the spiritual wisdom of the story, but also non-Muslims in the modern period, including Carl Jung, a director of a kung fu film, and others. Haman ends his monograph with a poem that synthesizes the many faces of the narrative and adds a unique personal touch to his work. Where the two seas meet has undoubtedly become the authoritative English language reference for research on The Green Man, and provides the reader with lucid writing and ample references. Inevitably, moreover, it will also interest readers beyond the Academy because of its transcultural wisdom and possibilities for interpretation. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Hugh Talat Hamat. Good morning, Talat. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Elliot. I really appreciate being able to discuss my book with you. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you about the book. E- even though all the interviews that I do for New Books in Islamic Studies, I, I particularly choose authors whose work interests me on some level, I think just because that makes, makes interviews more interested if the interviewer has a, a natural interest in the topic. But your topic particularly is something I've actually read about and researched a little bit, so I'm particularly interested to interview you, so I'm really excited uh, to chat. So, could we start things off by asking you to tell us about your educational background and how you got interested in the topic of Moses and Cheder?
2: Yeah, well, my, um, my educational background actually begins uh, from the age of six when my father took me to Turkey, but I didn't learn of Al-Qaeda so much later. And when I learned about al I had already gotten a uh, bachelor's in philosophy and had done a thesis on Socrates and Martin Buber. So I was very much attuned to the I-thou as part of my perspective in life. And then I went to Duke University and got a master's in which I wrote a dissertation uh, on Moses' narratives in the Quran and how they're different than the way Moses appears in the Sirah and in the Hadith and uh, about how Moses' narratives were an encouraging model for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Ummah, the community. And then my uh, dissertation um, arose actually out of that a master's thesis because my um, dissertation director and mentor and good friend Bruce Lawrence looked at my work and he said, "You've left out a very important story." And I said, "Oh yeah, I know. I, I the story of Moses and Exodus. I said, but it doesn't fit in with the, um, the the biblical comparisons. You know, can't compare it to anything in the Bible." He that later I found out that Second Kings chapter two has. The story of Elijah and Elisha has some vague uh, references for that. So that became a part of my uh, quest, suddenly. Uh, this, this narrative really spoke to me very deeply at that moment that I had to quickly insert it into my master thesis. And then um, I got uh, very moved by the story when I was uh, you know, post-M.A., and decided that I wanted to do my dissertation on Al-Khazr because of how valuable I had experienced the story as being. And the rest is a little bit obvious, that I did my dissertation on Al-Khazr uh, and uh, had, as a big part of it, uh, translated with help of friends, of course, of three um, Quran commentaries by medieval Sufi. Musafirun, uh, Kapsir, inter- interpreters of the Quran, And so um, that's uh, my educational background, really. I um, lived in Indonesia for a year as a Fulbright scholar, and I've been to Turkey five or six times, and I've been to Israel about three times. And I have um, been to the Dome of the Rock. And to Mevlana's Tomb in Konya. So, let me let that suffice.
1: Great. And uh obviously you you mentioned Rumi and how Khidr appears in different types of popular culture and we can come back to that topic later in the interview. Oh yeah. But First, do you think, could you just, in your own words, or whatever way you think is most meaningful and relevant to your book, could you sort of just summarize the Moses and Khidr story that the book is based on? I think that'll help our listeners get a context for what we're talking about.
2: I totally agree with you on that last point. So let me tell the story briefly. Um, This is a story in the 18th chapter of the Quran, verses 60 through 82. So it's 23 lines long. And Moses is journeying to the place where the two seas meet, and he is with Joshua. And he says, I'll journey on to find the place where the two seas meet, even if it takes ages. So they go on their journey, and they sit on a rock on the journey. And while they sit on the rock, the fish they brought for their meal slips out of the basket and tunnels through the water. And they go on traveling further. Joshua doesn't say anything about it, and Moses didn't see the fish disappear. And then Moses, as they go on their journey in the night, says, let's have that fish for our meal. And Joshua suddenly says, well, you know, the fish um, disappeared into the water and uh none but Satan made me forget to tell you, so he blames Satan. And Moses recognizes that this is the spot to which they have to return. So they return to that place, and they find there uh, what the Quran calls uh, abdin, uh, abdin and Abdin, the uh, servant, the exceptional servant among God's servants. And Moses goes to him and asks him, permission request that he could follow him to learn his guidance, rusht. And uh, he says to him, I, how could you possibly understand what is beyond your comprehension? And you won't have the patience to bear with what I will do. This word patience will be
0: reused many
2: times in this story. And Moses says, yes, I'll be patient, inshallah, I'll be patient. Uh, and Moses says to him, uh, you, you, it's not possible for you to be patient given what I do. And Moses asks again and assures him he'll be patient. And so finally, Al says, well, I'll agree to this if you agree not to talk or raise a question until I indicate that it's time to do so. And Moses agrees. And they go on their journey, and they get in a boat. And the people in the boat uh, know al Khazar and they all, you know, greet each other. And they're journeying down the river in this boat. And suddenly Moses hears this sound, and there's a sound of al Khazar gouging holes in the hull of the boat. And so Moses looks at him and says, What are you doing? That's an outrageous thing to do. And al Khazar says, Remember your promise? I warned you you would not have the patience to bear with what I will do. And Moses says, please forgive me for forgetting, and don't make my burden worse by reminding me of my faults. They continue further on their journey. And they come upon some children. An al whose name, incidentally, I should just mention, means the green one, or the green man, or the green. He kills the boy probably by twisting his, breaking his neck. And Moses is outraged, and he says, you've done an evil thing. Why would you uh, kill an innocent soul who has done no wrong? And Jesus says, remember your promise? I warned you, you would not have the patience to bear with what I would do. And Moses says, please forgive me for forgetting, and if I speak out again, I will understand if you decide to part company with me. And they go further on their journey to a village. And in the village, no one gives them any food or drink or hospitality. And they go to the edge of the village. And at the edge of the village is a wall dilapidated in ruins. And al moves his hands and quickly rebuilds the wall. And Moses says, why are you doing that? You're entired, you are entitled to wages for your work. And al said, this is the parting between me and you. But before I go, I will tell you the ultimate meaning. The word is ta'awil. The ultimate meaning or the inner meaning or the original meaning of the events that you did not have the patience to bear. And Alchazar explains to Moses, in the case of the boat people, they were poor people who earned their living on the river and coming up behind them was a king who was engaging in a war and was confiscating all boats in good condition to use in his war. And I intended that their boat should be spared. In the case of the child, his parents were a were faithful believers, and your Lord and I were concerned that he was growing up to be tyrannous and arrogant and rebellious. And so your Lord and I decided that he would be replaced with one better in purity and mercy. And some commentators point out that the replacement was a girl. And then in the case of the wall, a righteous man had left behind for his orphan sons a treasure as their inheritance uh, under that wall. And your Lord desired that they should be able, these two orphan boys, to grow up to be strong enough and old enough to be able to retrieve their treasure, which is a mercy from your Lord. And I did none of these things on my own account. This, again, is because are explaining to Moses. I did none of these things on my account. And that is the ultimate meaning of the things that you did not have the patience to bear. So that's the basic story. And i just point out right now, because we can get into this as we talk, the word patience is used seven times in the story. The sabr. And the word ta'wil, meaning original meaning, inner meaning, ultimate meaning, the word ta'wil is used twice in that story uh, and uh, only appears two other times, excuse me, three other times throughout the entire Qur'an.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for your summary and... Obviously, uh, there's a lot going on in the story, uh, enough to write a whole book about it and multiple articles (laughs) and still obviously not not touch on everything that people have thought over the years. Um, One one thing that you talk about a little bit, and uh, I was hoping you could comment on, is what's the significance of where the story takes place in the Qur'an? So you talk about how there's the story of the people of the cave, and then after the story of Moses and Khidr, there's the story of Dhul Karnain, which some people think uh, is Alexander. And also, mm-hmm. just the placement, like it's in the chapter 18, is kind of in the middle of the Quran, and the story of Khidr and Moses is kind of in the middle of the chapter. And so, could you say something about the significance of how the story is located within the Quran?
2: Yes, I have always been um, intrigued about. The fact that uh, Surat al kahf the 18th chapter of the Qur'an, the uh, Surah chapter of the cave, has three, actually has four stories, but three of them really stand out as being uh, uh, alarming and catching your attention. And those stories are the stories of the um, people of the cave, known in the Christian world as the story of the seven sleepers of Ephesus, and the story of Al-Khazir, and then the story that follows immediately after the story of al uh in uh, chapter 18, verses 83 through 101, the story of a figure named Bulk Parnay, who, as I try to show in chapter 6 of my book, the story that is presented there has many parallel motifs, and the a sequence following the classic, Alexander Romance genre of literature. And, uh, there's a lot there about, um, in that story about, uh, there's a motif about the end times building a wall to protect people from Gog and Magog, who are figures also in the Bible of the end time coming from the northeast. Uh, there is, um, I teach those surahs in my classes, and I point out these three stories. And one of the things that these three stories suggest that is interesting, especially given the way they're told, which is that there's not a lot of explanation in either of the uh, three stories. Not a lot of narrative details that you would need if you were hearing these stories for the first time. But given how opaque and concise the narratives are, I think this shows that the people of the Prophet's community, knew these stories already, because the Quran accounts seem to be more like commentaries on the stories. The Khuzr story itself is the most replete with details. And if you take uh, the um, story of Khuzr and Alexander together, you have many of the ingredients for what is known as the Alexander Romance, which also includes uh, the motif of the fish uh, that ends up in the water of eternal life. Um, but all three of these stories come from what would be a Christian world. So the people of the cave story has a long history uh, in the Christian world coming out of Syria, Uh, The Alexander Romance was translated into what started out in Greek and was earliest translated into Latin. So this is some of the uh, kind of integrity of the three stories. Uh, Also, the three stories could be looked at as stories that deal with uh, death and resurrection. Uh, Alexander the Great was, in the romance, he was seeking the water of eternal life, because it had been astrologically predicted that he would die young, and he wanted to avert that fate. The story of Chizur has many motifs about death, the most obvious one being the killing of the child, but I try to argue that many of the motifs in the story are triggers about death and immortality. And then the story of the people at Caves for those who don't know it, involves the fact that seven, a certain number of boys, young men, katah, of virtuous young men, are in a state in between sleep and wakefulness over the course of a great number of years. And the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus' Krishna story, it's about 180 years. The Qur'an kind of suggests that it's 309 years. But at any rate, the Quran also says not to argue about all these details, and uh, mentions 309 as a possibility for uh, how many years it was. So this is a story about uh, that was taken by the Christians who first told it to be a story about the resurrection, because this act of the boys being in this in-between liminal state uh, was a symbol of death, and the fact that they awoke again is a symbol of the resurrection. And uh, the Qur'an says that the meaning of the story of the people of the cave is about the sa'ah, the hour, meaning the hour of the end times, the hour of our death. So I see those um, kind of continuities.
1: Yeah. So if we could stay on this topic of, of immortality, which you, you talk about, a bit about in the book, and focus on this act of Khidr killing the kid. I think people reading the story for the first time might be taken aback by that. And, oh, the Qur'an's so violent. There's this like guy doing criminal acts, but it's somehow okay or something like that. So could you talk about how various uh, interpreters have understood that? and maybe how it it questions the idea of reading the Qur'an literally, which, you know, obviously, as far as I know, there's no widespread movement of people killing little kids based on the Khidr story. So obviously people have come up with a a way to read it over the years that doesn't inspire violence.
2: Well, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, according to Hadith and either Bukhari or Muslim, said that one should not kill a child unless one has the knowledge of Al-Khuzr. So that kind of rules out that. The principle behind Al-Khuzr's actions is, according to many commentators, is that he has the knowledge of qadr, the knowledge of predestination. So he understands somehow, he knows what he's doing, in the sense that he is actually averting a greater evil. And it's surprising to me, actually, that in the commentaries I've seen, uh, the commentators don't focus on this story as a story about good and evil, which I can imagine one might, but they don't. <laughs> so I'll defer to uh, their genre of work, how they do it. But the key thing is that um, this is done with the knowledge of predestination, and since most of us don't have knowledge of predestination, we're not qualified to do these kinds of things because we don't know the context of what we will be doing. If I get in a boat and gouge out the holes, uh, uh, in, in the hull of the boat, that's just me doing something, uh, evil or cruel or criminal. But it's really based around the fact that Al-Khazr has, uh, the knowledge of Qadr. And this is what one of the commentators very strongly emphasizes. The Sufi commentators in my book strongly emphasizes this knowledge of Qadr. And as I said, the Prophet Muhammad also emphasized that
1: point. So, so on the topic of of Muhammad, so the ways we know about the story, like you were saying, is maybe there or oral, tr- oral traditions that the story itself hints at, and there's things that the commentators came up with which aren't necessarily the same things you would come up with, for example, like good and evil. But you've also mentioned that we know that the man's name in the story is Khidr, but we don't know that from the story itself. So could you say a little bit more about what else we know about the story from the Hadith literature?
2: Yes, the Hadith have uh, quite extensive uh, commentary on the story. Uh, the first order of business of which is to establish that Moses is the Moses of the children of Israel, the same Moses who received the Torah. Uh, from the Hadith, we also uh, understand that Moses already had the Torah. Some things we get from the Hadith is why Moses was in the first place even searching for where the two seas meet. Because in the Hadith, the story starts earlier with the idea that Moses had been teaching the children of Israel. And one of the listeners came forward and asked Moses, are you the wisest man on earth? And Moses said, yes. And he didn't say, inshallah. He just said, yes, I am. And at that moment, God performed an act of wising, of uh, inner revelation to Moses, and said to him, there is one wiser than you, you must go seek him. And Moses asked, well, where will I find him? And, uh, excuse me, um, God says to Moses, you'll find him at the place where the two seas meet." Moses says, how will I find that? And God says, because you'll take your fish with you as a meal. And the place where you lose your fish will be the place that you have to trace back to to find uh, al-Khazir. Now, a very important part of the Hadith
0: transmission
2: about this story is also the very name, al-Khazir, which in more classical Arabic of the Hadith is pronounced al-Khadr and voweled differently, so it's spelled K H A. D-I-R rather than the common K-H-I-D-R or K-H-I-Z-R. And so the companions of the Prophet Muhammad are narrated in a and asking the Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad how is the man in the story who is the companion to Moses, the Sahib Musa companion to Moses. And the Prophet Muhammad says his name is Al-Khazim, or al Khadr. And, of course, his listeners knew that this meant the green one. And then they asked him why is he named the green one. And the Prophet said because when he would sit down on barren land, whenever he would get up, that land would be verdant with green vegetation. And also in the story when um, Moses and well, are in the boat a bird perches on the boat with a drop of water in its mouth now Heather says to Moses the combination of your knowledge and my knowledge is as that one drop in that bird's beak compared to the entire ocean which is God's knowledge. And um, also Al-Khuzar in the Hadith says to Moses that you have a knowledge from God that I don't have and I have a knowledge from God that you don't have. Uh, this at least implies the reception of the Torah as preceding uh, the um, the story the engagement of al-khidr and uh, moses
0: mm-hmm.
2: so these are some of the salient uh, details uh, there's all kinds of uh, you know um, explanations of details in the story you know how the how did the fish tunnel through the water it explains the shape of the opening of the water and uh, details like uh, like that
1: mhm and so I would also think, too, a reader looking at the story with, you know, little or even a lot of background in the Korean or no background would see would see it ripe with a lot of esoteric themes, which clearly authors over the years have done that. And so in the book, you focus on Sufi commentaries. I was wondering, could you say something a little bit about what makes these commentaries particularly Sufi? Uh, and whether or not someone like Tabari, who you also talk about a bit, um, is also reading it in a sort of quote-unquote Sufi way. So, what what's separating the Sufi commentaries from the non-Sufi commentaries?
2: The Sufi commentaries uh, have a lot of detail about spiritual state and stations, and focus on explaining more in detail al uh knowledge um, using Sufi vocabulary to explain this knowledge. So words like kashif, which means unveiling, are a major term in the Sufi commentaries. Uh, people like Al-Khazur are more uh, interested in um, what I would call folklore about al Qazr. You know, al probably at one point says, because is a Persian... Moses is the children of Israelite. Um, the, the Sufi commentaries are not as interested in those narrative details, although they do pick up parts of uh, the mainstream commentaries, but Kavari. but they're certainly much more interested in uh, issues of spiritual practice. For example, Uncle Sherry begins by contrasting, and I think Ruz Bahan does too, follows Uncle Sherry closely, of uh, compares the events of Moses, these two great theophanic events of Moses, the uh, 30 days at Sinai with God, and this journey uh, for and with Al-Hazer. And uh, the Sufis are very interested in the fact that Moses was able to fast when he was with God, but when he was just traveling uh, and traveling with cousin, he was not able to fast. But the whole lexicon of Sufism is used, or not all of it, but most of it, is used, the word like unveiling it as Khuzr's knowledge, meaning that it's direct. There's a lot of emphasis on it being directly bestowed knowledge, or Ilma Lubduni, it's called in the text of the Qur'an. There's lots of talk about, uh, mushahada, the witnessing, uh, especially with Ruzbahan, a lot of mushahada and mujahada, uh, meaning striving or we know it means asceticism in the, uh, Sufi, uh, commentaries and other Sufi writings, mujahada. Um, so th- these, uh, uh, ideas that what the story represents Includes the spiritual states and stations, but also includes a prototype for the master-disciple relationship. And this is something that the Sufis talk about, particularly as Ruzban, uh, which is not in the mainstream commentary. So they make uh, um, a big deal of this story as relating to the master-disciple relation as being a prototype for that. And so these are some of the basic ways that these commentaries are Suzy, except one more a point about Suzy commentary. In the third commentary I use, Al Akhashani, we have more of an interiorization of the story. So the story is something that's happening within the human soul. So Khuzr is the Akhul al-Qudzi, the sacred intellect, and Moses is the nafs, and, or the kolb and the nafs. And the acts in the story, like the breaking of the vault and the slaying of the child, are allegorically represented as being the destruction of the nefs salamara, the domineering nefs, the egotistical nefs, the commanding nefs. And that the building of the wall represents the fourth level of the soul in the basic Sufi model, of the soul of serenity or tranquility. Uh, and so this uh, story in the hands of Al-Khashani uh, becomes an allegory for the soul and the work on the soul, the mujahada on the soul. And uh, so this is another uh, way that Sufi commentaries are... Um, what, what the interests of the Sufi commentaries are compared to mainstream
1: commentaries are there are there ways in which you think the sufi commentaries are subversive either in the ones the medieval ones during the time the they they arose or or today which relates to something else i want to ask you about is do you do you have conversations with with people you know of different backgrounds who who might wonder, like, "Oh, you're reading these Sufi commentaries? Like, you know, those are those are just made up stories, following their whims, or something like that." Which is, of course, tied to a bigger polemic in Islamic intellectual history. But so just, so, just to be concise, maybe it's
2: their whims. What's that? Maybe it's their whims. Uh-huh. I take the word "whim" when I say it very seriously, um, as there can be, you know, there can be an inspired whim. But what the Sufi commentaries the commentators say about their Sufi tafsirs or Sufi commentaries is that they're finding reflected in the Quran knowledge that they've achieved through mystical work and meditation and uh, Sufi training. So that this is not tafsir uh, d'ra'i. This is not commentary merely... From opinion, this is commentary based on deep, hard-earned, and well-graced knowledge of mystical states, and they don't do anything subversive with the story.
1: Well, I meant meant subversive in terms of how uh, their interpretations are received, Um, but yeah, you don't.
2: I don't. don't I think the story. I I think, and I've had the experience of uh, the core story itself, uh, seems a little bit subversive. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's a good thing that we have a context in which the Prophet said, you're not supposed to do these kinds of things unless you have the knowledge of Khuzrat hat. Uh, And uh, it occurs to me one day that uh, Khuzrat being an immortal must have a lot of life experience. Mm-hmm. A lot. Um, so I guess I was kind of surprised at how uh, restrained the Sufi commentaries were. Uh-huh. Uh, but nobody ever seems to go out on a limb, except maybe Ruzbahan. Okay, so Ruzbahan mentions halaj in the midst of this, and Ruzbahan talks about jump Jum, uh, the essential union. Okay? Now, this is really pushing the envelope, which is something Ruzbahan is kind of famous for doing. He's uh, famous for Chapiat, um, the ecstatic utterances. And fortunately, his diaries are um, available through Carl Ernst's um, publication of them. And Carl Ernst was uh, a, one of my guides in doing this book. In fact, it was Carl Ernst who had suggested to me to um, translate Sufi commentaries on Khuzad. And so that gave me some basis to really work with in the beginning and to complete the book with. Um, but I don't find um, the commentaries subversive. I find them quite restrained, except for this final jump part of Ruzbahan's because the Arnold jump idea suggests that there's some kind of unity between the self and God,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that some people would consider, uh, if not subversive, then perhaps verging on the heretical.
1: Uh-huh. Sure.
2: And the first behind is very bold and explicit in describing his multiple visions that he experienced over his life. And he saw all the prophets, and he saw many angels, uh, There's one story that I mention in the book that um, uh, al uh brought him an apple uh, and said, this is the apple of Gnosis. And Ruzbahan ate some of it and stopped, and Al-Khulser said, please continue and finish eating the apple of Gnosis. So uh, as far as the person goes, it's uh, just the Eino John part of, uh, which comes at the end of Rusban's commentary on the story.
1: Uh huh. And so, this theme about immortality, I'd never thought about it quite that way before that if you're immortal, you're going to have a lot of life experience. I think that's, that's, very, <laughs> that's a very well taken point. Um, so on, on this notion of immortality, it's, it's been a theme over the years in Sufi literature, as you talk about in your book, for people to have visions of or real-life encounters, depending on how you, you look at it and they write about it, of, of Khidr. So could you, could you say something about this? What the importance of actually interacting with Khidr in the lives of Sufis or Sufi saints has been? And, and then the follow-up to that is are are these stories didactic do you think or are these are these real visions and real encounters that people at least believe that they have had
2: Well I think first of all that we have to think that if people see Al Hazza based on my limited knowledge as one who has never physically, seen Al-Khuzr, that if people do see Al-Khuzr, they're seeing him with the eyes of the heart. And I'm basically adapting this idea from Shia literature, where Ali said, I can't worship a god that I cannot see. And somebody asked him how that could be, and he says, I don't mean with the physical eyes, I mean with the eyes of the heart. Mm. So I I would have to guess that if a person sees al-Khazib, it's through the eyes of the heart. Now, as you know, I collected all these uh, pieces of hagiography from the different Sufi saint stories uh, where I found meetings with al-Khazib. And to my great surprise, one of the themes that uh, comes up a number of times is that um one should continue to follow one's own sheikh. And so uh, this happens uh, to a number of the saints. There's a great story about Rumi is teaching, and someone is sitting in the back going, yes, that's right, and he's teaching on the story of Chizur. And so this man in the back saying, yes, that's right, yes, that's right. And some of the disciples realize it might be Chizur himself, so they grab his cloak. And Al-Khazr says, you should follow Jalaluddin. So Al-Khuzr never seems to appropriate, uh, authority over and against that of the Sufi teachers. Now, one important thing about, uh, the experience of Khazr, Ibn Arabi points out that the events of, of, of Al-Khazr's actions mirror actions that happened in the life of Moses. So we have the boats part of the story, and we know that um, Moses was put into a basket uh, in, in the bulrushes of the river and floated down in an insecure situation in the basket. And uh, we know that Moses murdered a man, or, or with manslaughter technically, uh, that he killed an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite. So Moses has done manslaughter, and yet when Chuzr does it, uh, he objects. Uh, and also, um, in the case of the wall, we have the parallel of the building of uh, the buildings for the Pharaoh that happened in Moses' life. So Ibn Arabi wants to think that these are um, reflections of Moses' life, which is an interesting possibility. Um, so seeing Khuzr would have the effect of, uh, in addition to being a miraculous experience, for example, when Ibn Arabi saw Khuzr at one point, Khuzr was praying on a such a, a, a prayer rug, um, was praying, uh, seven cubits in the air. And in a rare story where Khuzr is appearing to uh, more than one person at a time, uh, after Al-Khuzr finishes his prayer, both the uh, uh, farther than the nawafel, the, the necessary and the uh, extraneous prayers, Al-Khuzr says to Ibn Arabi, I only did this, meaning the feat of praying seven cubits high, Says I only did that for this unbeliever. So there's, in that itself, you asked about didactic, so... That itself is a very didactic Khuzr story. Mm-hmm. In many stories, Khuzr gives saints a prayer to use, especially the prominent story of Nizamuddin Aliyah, uh, who receives a form of prayer called the Ten Sets of Seven uh, from Khuzr, which involves a combination of different chapters of the Quran that are done in many, many, many uh, cycles of prayer. Uh, and uh, ten cycles of prayer. Um, so, the, is the story of Husser didactic outside of the realm of miracles and miraculous events? Uh, I think it's very didactic. Uh, I personally, when I encountered the story, found it to be very helpful in the understanding of what we call in the West a theodicy, God's justice. This is kind of like where the Muslim commentators stress qadar, predestination. Uh, one might be inclined, without that knowledge, to think of this as a theodicy tale. And the folklorists have classified this, uh, I forget the number, I think it's Arn Thompson uh, 759a, uh, as a theodicy tale. And they've classified it as a theodicy tale. So I think the tale is extremely didactic as a theodicy tale, giving the message that beneath the hardships and the evils of life, there is a hidden treasure buried under one's wall that one can retrieve, and that the events that one experiences are the events of the best of possible worlds, are better events than otherwise. Uh, could turn out. So the story has the potential that I've experienced in my life of being comforting. And I'll just insert here that uh, I used the story in 1993 and 4 to contextualize a personal adversity that was happening, which was that I was getting divorced. And I found this story very helpful to me in dealing with the the pains and the anguish of the separation of of divorce. So I think it's a very didactic story, and I think that the appearance of chuzr is extremely important because we don't know what God looks like except that the Quran and the Bible tell us that God has eyes and hands and feet and and such and sits on a throne. And and the the issue here is that according to the cognitive science of religion, which is an emerging field in religious studies, according to that discipline, human beings are naturally prone to conceive of God or God's... In human form. That's sort of boiling down a lot of people's work, to say that we are prone to see God in human form. Mm-hmm. And what Al-Khuzr's appearances offer, in the sense that Carl Jung interpreted them, for example, where he called Khuzr the human personification of Allah. And Carl Jung actually wrote a lot about Al-Khuzr. So the figures like al Khazar and Elijah are helpful in in giving some presence to God. By putting God in, by deputizing someone in human form.
1: Sure, and it seems that would relate to this this statement of of Ali that you're, you're mentioning as well. What exactly does it mean to see God? And of course, that's its own... Argument right with people interpreting the Quran is does God really have eyes or is it metaphorical and people have all sorts of different yeah fill a case that. yeah and so you mentioned Carl Jung and so I'm I'm guessing a lot of a lot of people might be surprised that what what was Carl Jung doing reading about Khidr, but you also talk a bit in the book that this isn't just a story that's been relevant and. In Muslim cultures, from scholarly literature to popular um, culture, but you know, so-called Westerners have been really interested in Khidr too. And you mentioned Voltaire and Jung and some Christian saints. So could you say a little Voltaire. bit? So could you say a little bit more about how Khidr uh, has been understood outside of Muslim culture?
2: Yeah, first of all, I'd like to comment that I see in my bibliography that I found five different sources where Carl Jung mentions Al-Khuzr. And he has a single essay devoted to Surat al Kaf, the 18th chapter of the Qur'an, and he talks about Al-Khuzr there, um, as well as in other places. And there is a young scholar, Batia, uh, I think his name is, let me see... Um, Batier, Nicholas Batier, has written an entire chapter in a book called Khazar in the Opus of Jung. So let's back up a bit before we return to Carl Jung and let's see who are some of the earliest people to refer to Al in the West. Probably the earliest is Goethe, who wrote a Divan, a, uh, a book of poetry modeled after the Divan of Hafez, uh, the great Persian 14th century. Poet who received the gift of poetry from Al Khuzr. Uh, he, he worked for it in a 40 day and night vigil, staying awake, and he understood by being at Baba Kuhi's shrine in the area of, of Piri Sabs, the green master who was actually a woman, that doing an, this koa uh, uh, there after 40 days and 40 nights, Khuzr came and gave. Hafez, the gift of poetry. Um, so Goethe had read Hafez, I was very inspired by him, and Goethe, um, uh, did this, uh, imitation of Hafez, and in the opening of the verse, he talks about the, uh, the troubles of Western Europe, and he says that, and the decay of Western Europe, and he says that we should look toward the east for Khuzr's spring, you know, meaning water. And so this is one of the first uh, uh, allusions to Khuzr that I could find in any uh, Western sh- sources. Um, there's Vol- Vol- the case of Voltaire is interesting because I mention a story in Candide where Voltaire tells a story about a dervish. And the story has a lot of a theodicy kind of meaning, and also uh, the dervish refuses to engage in philosophical speculation with um, uh, uh, Pangloss, the seeker of uh, knowledge in the story. But in, a, in another book of his called Zadig, in the second to last chapter, he has a story about, the, um, about a hermit who uh, kills... Uh, the uh, a young boy, and uh, the, um, the the protagonist of the story objects to this and calls it evil, and uh, he says to him, the hermit says to him, "You must have patience." So these these are two stories from Voltaire that would seem to have some kind of resonance with <laughs> with uh, the closer story. Is not that they. Uh, w- are directly inspired that mo- the way it's na- narrated in uh it parallels the literal language of the story of Al-Khuzr so these are uh, some of the people that come to mind as foremost among the westerners who have um, dealt with al but I'll tell you about a really exciting western adaptation of Al-Khuzr there's a movie called Circle of Iron from 1980, late 80s, and in the story, it's a story about a martial artist who's seeking training from different masters, and one of the masters is this blind Kung Fu master, played by David Carradine, and in the movie, and I think it's the 17th chapter of the movie, 16th and 17th chapters of the movie, I've shown it to students, that's why I remember those chapter numbers. And there is a story that very closely follows the story of al except that now it's a kung fu master doing it, and the Moses figure is merely a martial arts aspirant. But it is the same exact story that is rendered as part of this martial artist's training. And again, the, open him up to things beyond what he can know and believe, and to learn patience especially the lesson of patience. Patience um, is a big achievement. It's the last name of God, is Yasabur. Yeah. And uh, one of my teachers has suggested to me that it's the hardest of all the names uh, to take on. And uh, some of Patience, I think, uh, is respecting the time and season when the thing should happen, as opposed to rushing one's own agenda on top of the natural flow of events. Uh, So those are are some of the Westerners who've done the story. I think the Circle of Iron film is really uh, a fun experience to see uh, the story enacted on film.
1: Yeah, I've, I've and all three to of the it, motifs are
2: there the boat's there, the boy's there and the wall is there um, back in the wall you see the treasure that's being uh, re-hidden again you see that and it's kind of striking that the wizard uh, figure is this blind flute playing a uh, martial arts master because he's going around you know, uh, without physical vision you and know? uh, in the in the story, though, in the movie, he um, after he breaks the boards, then they go find the child um, who is nagging at his parents. Alcozor uh, slaps him hard, or excuse me, uh, the uh, martial artist played by David Carradine uh, slaps him very hard and apparently injures him, but doesn't actually kill him. But the story has all three of the motifs and it has all three of the explanations of. At
1: all, who are gay? And, and so, check it out. Yeah, no, I've actually, I've meant to, I've heard about it before, but it's good that you're reminding us, um, so me and, and the listeners, so we can, lots of people can, can see this film. And so, I think another thing that stands out about your book, which you've been, which has been the subtext of a lot of what you've been saying, is I think very clearly this book uh, is appealing to a lot of different audiences. Because Chedor, that's just sort of how he's worked over the years. He's been a figure in grand commentaries, but also in popular um, "quote unquote" folklore, and then you know, kung fu movies, even. And so, speaking of like so-called Western um, interest in the stories, as as someone writing in English, you you end the book in, I would say, a unique way in terms of how. Academics uh, approach their scholarship, and you end the book in a poem. And would oh yeah, if you have the book in front of you, would you be would you be willing to read one or two uh, sections of the poem just to give? Yes, our, I'd be very happy to. Sense? I would
2: be very happy to, but I really want to share a little story, personal story that you know I wrote this big dissertation Al Olchuzin. We all write these dissertations. And one day I asked myself, well, what good is this? You know, who's being helped by it? Who can understand? So I gave a copy of it to my 15-year-old son. And I said, all you need to read is these two pages here, you know, the story of al Khazar And I said to him, because he was into hip-hop and rap, I said, could you do me a rap version of the story of al Khazar? You know, in other words, I wanted to be able to think that somehow this abstract dissertation entity, could be understood by someone who is 15 or 14 or 13 or 12. Mm-hmm. I really wanted it to be accessible. And I think the poem came with some of that same intention, that I wanted something that would, you know, have uh, the gifts, the benefits and blessings of poetry to it, to sort of uh, summarize the book. It's called For the Journey, One Needs a Companion. But the journey one needs a companion, the journey not shared is abandoned, and the one who would go, goes at random, unless patience is practiced in tandem with a guide of the heart, who with passion advances the soul of the seeker with rations of insight into the heart's true intentions. Good manners and morals are mentioned as the basis to understand situations, and silence and trust and also patience come first in the seeking of stations. Intuition is patience, and to phase in a deeper knowledge of place in the spectrum of being and stay in the knowledge of God means to weigh in on the matter of patience and companions with a guide one must follow in dancing to the center of balance, in standing with adab and suhba, enhancing the potential for spiritual advancing. One cannot sit out alone as just one, One who does so would be abandoned, take a guide, and then go and stand in his circle of fellows and follow with passion. For it is these three things that are demanded, patience, good manners, and to be a companion. And sometimes life brings on such suffering that patterns get unwound and loosening strings. Remember the meaning of suffering that Chuzar showed Moses in all the things for which Moses lacked patience, understanding. If only we knew the deep meaning, we might have the patience that we need to bring. But that practice of patience, like forgiving, comes first in the order of things. First is the practice, then that brings the meaning you seek for understanding from the viewpoint of the everlasting.
1: Well, I think it's such a lovely way to conclude your book, um, because I think it's a lovely poem, and also because I think, it's it's so nice when authors uh, give a little piece of themselves, which is one of the intentions behind the interviews for New Books Network. Um, but is there? Do you have any final thoughts in terms of how the that poem reflects the the main themes that you covered in your book?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, for example, the words Adab and Sukhba were in the poem. And uh, those are two really big main themes in the book. Uh, the knowledge that Al-Khuzr is imparting is what's called Ta'adib, which comes from the same root as adab, adab meaning morals and etiquette and perfect action and um, courtesy and all, all things related to those ideas, adab, and uh, adab is a big part of the book and then sukhba is companionship. And so the poem is uh, aiming to emphasize the idea that companionship is necessary for the spiritual path, especially the companionship of a morid, a student or aspirant, literally, and a an murshid, that they have to have this kind of companionship together, and that many of the Sufi texts argue that this is necessary, there are these proverbial statements that one who doesn't have an imam, a living imam will die in ignorance uh, so the companionship uh, is the key to the uh, beginning of the poem, to find the spiritual guide and that idea and then uh, in the um, the uh, and the patience the theme of patience I wanted to bring that in because that's, you know, that's a tough piece of work for lots of people, is patience. Very tough piece of work. Uh, trying to, you know, let go of one's uh, expectations and allow things to happen. Very difficult. And then in the last part of the poem, I really wanted to give voice to my own uh, initial way of understanding the story as a story that teaches about how to understand and accept suffering. And one of my big surprises with the uh, Tafsir is that they didn't talk about—even even poverty. didn't talk about the story as one about suffering, did not talk about the story as about evil, uh, did not talk about the story as being a theodicy, but rather uh, a story based on the knowledge of predestination. So I wanted to bring give voice to the idea that the story does have the potential to help people with their suffering. And um, so that's some of the impetus uh, for which I included that particular um, poem. Uh, I just wanted to also do something like uh, say that, because in a funny sense, this book is a book about the idea that the real kind of knowledge you need cannot be found in a book. So the book is <laughs> subversive unto itself. Yeah. Okay? And so, by analogy, I wanted to give a poem which would be like a different register of knowledge than a dry academic text, which this in some ways is, except for chapter 5 and 6, which have lots of fun stories, and also chapter 1 and 2, which has good storytelling. But, you know, some of the material is a little bit dry, and I would wish that uh, I could have given it some uh, moisture
1: <laughs> more than I did.
2: Uh, because, you know, it started out as a dissertation, and then I revised it into a book. And so the poetry was to present the kind of knowledge that is beyond the... Um, ta'alim. So there's an important emphasis in the commentaries that ta'alim is instruction, and instruction is one kind of knowledge that can be imparted with, with words and books. And then there's ta'adib, which is a training in spirituality, particularly in morals and etiquette, but that you have to catch, like a, like a spark igniting, you have to catch uh, this... Um, state, the the state or station of the murshid, you have to sort of pick it up by being around that person. And so um, I think that Moses was greatly benefited by the experience that he had, Uh, although Al-Khoshiri suggests that there was a problem that Moses was asking to be taught something that could not be taught because the person teaching it had not received it by teaching, but had received it directly from God. Hmm. So you know, we have to have someone from whom we catch and capture the state or station uh, as much as and more so than we need instruction. So that's a lot of uh, the theme of the book. It's about those two words, adab and the other word that's major word in the book is sohaba, which means companionship or fellowship. And it was very interesting to me how often these two words came up in different texts. And so one could say that this is a book about Adab and sukhva as being basic principles of how to engage in a Sufi path, along with the variables of patience and um, accepting one's suffering more gracefully, uh, that's what uh, this
1: book is about. Well, and I, I think it's, it's very timely, too, given the way technology has affected people's relationships. And so the Sufi idea of, you know, there being something more to interactions than just the sort of book knowledge that you can exchange. And so, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons the, the tale has remained so, so relevant across the ages. Um, so I uh, know I've taken up a bit of your, your time to, lot uh, before we, we go, could you tell us a little bit about current projects you're working on or ideas you have in the coming years?
2: Yeah. Um, let's see, I'm working right now actively on three projects and I have a fourth one kind of tucked in the back. So I'll do it David Letterman style. Uh, the fourth one tucked in the back is a project to look at uh, marginal uh, semi-Islamic messiahs. So I have um, identified as three people I want to study, or at least two of these people. Uh, the, in the Baha'i faith, a figure called the Bab, who was uh, thought to be the 12th imam, returned and had that authority. Uh, the other two figures are Mirza Ghulam Ahmed from the Ahmadiyya, who considered himself Sahaba Zaman, the master of the age. And the third figure is Meher Baba, who also called himself Sahaba Zaman, the master of the age. So I, I had an idea to do a comparative study of these uh, people. But in the meantime, while life is uh, busy while I'm making other plans, um, I was asked, to do some papers for the AAR, uh, one, in one case and the other case, I wondered what could I do for the AAR. And I got two papers accepted this year, so I'm working on uh, these two projects right now. One is the story, I call, call the paper, Avataric Sufism, the Reorientation of Sufism in the West by Meher Baba. And in that, I trace the ways in which Meher Baba was a Sufi teacher Using Sufi concepts, but especially also, and had a Sufi background, but that, and training, but that also, he actually charted, excuse me, chartered a Sufi order in the West. And so this is the story of what happened to Hazrat Nayat Khan's uh, successor, Rabia Martin, and how she turned the Sufi order of Hazrat Nayat Khan over to Meher Baba. And then the second AAR paper is, um, on erotic metaphors in Sufi poetry. So this is a panel on metaphor as metaphysics, and something in the title of the panel is about erotic poetry. This is a friend of mine, Graham Schweig, who is a scholar of Bhakti, uh, Hindu literature, and they needed, uh, you know, an Islamic, uh, paper, so I was welded into that particular panel. And then, last but not least, although it's not an academic, it is an academic research project, but it's a, um, uh, for teaching rather than research, I'm offering a course in the fall called Rock and Roll and Spirituality, so I'm looking a lot at the ways in which people have redirected many of their religious impulses into their engagement with rock and roll uh, and have left behind some of the institutions and the degrees to which rock and roll is for some people a spirituality, the way in which for some people certain rock artists are mediators of meaning. I'm thinking especially of Bruce Springsteen and the Grateful Dead, you know, whose followers are uh, almost devout uh, in their uh, relationship with the artists and the music. So rock and roll and spirituality is another uh, field that I'm working on because I'll be teaching a course in it. just read a great book on the gospel according to the Beatles. So that's a little bit like uh, what my reading <laughs> this summer is uh, like between the uh, Sufi poetry, the Mehrabah story, and the rock and roll. Uh, and finally, on the back burner, this project about these three Sahibah zaman master of the age figures.
1: Well, it sounds like an exciting agenda and I can only imagine yeah, it is. Stu- students will will sign up for your class on spirituality and rock and roll with excitement. Um, I'll be interested. To- yeah, I'm
2: very thrilled to get to do it. Very thrilled to get to do it. You know, we um, we were told by our dean to um, create hot topic courses to get enrollments increased. And so that was my offering to the request.
1: <laughs> well wonderful well thank, thank you so much again for joining us today Tula, and doing this interview it's been a real pleasure to chat with you and to hear about the book straight from the source
2: thanks Elliot I really enjoyed talking with you too thank you for your wonderful questions and thank you for this opportunity to share the story of Al-Khazr with
1: uh, other people of course my, my pleasure thanks again that was my conversation with Hugh Talat Haman. Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Central Michigan University, about his exciting new book, Where the Two C's Meet, the Quranic story of Al-Khidr and Moses in Sufi commentaries as a model of spiritual guidance, published by Fons Vida, 2013. Thanks for listening.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty,